Glad to be here this weekend. Normally we're still coming home from holidays and, and then when I get home the next week, everyone tells us that this was the best weekend of the whole summer. And, uh, and I think they're right. I like this time of year because uh, it starts getting dark at about nine o'clock and you can go to bed and you uh, can sleep because it starts to cool off. It's not 24 degrees all night long. So uh, many things to be thankful for this time of year. This morning we're going to be reading from Psalms 121, verses 1 to 8, if you want to follow along. Psalms 121, starting in verse 1. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade in your right hand. The sun shall, shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. The reading of God's word. This psalm was believed to be written in one of two occasions. It's either a soldier who has just come out of a battle or is about to go into a battle, or most likely a traveler before beginning a voyage where he could encounter some hazards, be it robbers, wild beasts, or the elements themselves. And that makes a lot of sense when the opening line is, I lift up my eyes to the hills, from where does my help come? Life is full of many dangers. Our bodies can succumb to diseases, injuries, accidents, wars, and natural disasters. Our security can be affected by a family disaster, loss of a child, divorce, economic recession, unemployment, an overwhelming debt load, a poor business decision, or even a Trudeau government. Our spirits can be hindered by doubt, sin, evil, corruption, manipulation, and false teaching. And when you reflect on all that could happen to you, you may find yourself in the exact situation where you ask, where will my help come from? Many of us at this time come to one of two conclusions. One is that it's all too overwhelming. There's no hope. And in this despair, I may as well self-medicate, distract myself for a while, and forget about my problems. Or two, that this is time to make a plan, pick yourself up by the bootstraps, and whether hell or high water, you're going to make it all by yourself. No matter how miserable or tough it gets, you're going to be 100% self-reliant. But both of these often leave you in the exact same situation in despair that no amount of distraction or temporary comfort removes the fears of this life, and no amount of self-effort can fully prepare you for everything you'll encounter in this life. But the psalmist doesn't leave us there. It is not left as an open-ended question of despair. Instead, 
the psalmist lifts their eyes to the hills and answers, my help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. The sole source of his help comes from Yahweh who as creator has unlimited power. He did not look to the hills for help, but beyond them to the creator of the hills. In fact, in Jeremiah 3.23, it says, Truly in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitude of mountains. And I don't know why we're not more often like this psalmist, who by the very nature of his helplessness of asking, where does our help come from, that you can obviously lean on the all-powerful God who can actually help us in our time of need. David made this mistake in 1 Chronicles 21. It says, Satan rose up and incited David to take a census of Israel. Here's the situation. David wanted to know how many fighting men he had so he would know his own military strength. He did this against Joab's council, where Joab literally says, may the Lord multiply his troops a hundred times over. Why would you bring this guilt on Israel? But David did it anyway. He sent his order and found out he had 1.1 million fighting men and then was punished with a plague on Israel where he lost 70,000 people. David, relying on his own strength, lost roughly three times the population of Fort St. John, not in a battle from an attacking nation, but from the hand of God in response to his pride. But isn't this the case that often we forget to rely on God first? And isn't until we have exhausted all of our other options before we turn to him? Most of, the try, most of the time I try to accomplish things on my own strength until I get to the end of myself, and then I finally pray for God to help. If I could just get there first, I could probably save myself a lot of anxiety, fear, and failure. When I was a kid, I remember we had youth group at the farm, and it was very exciting because uh, there wasn't a lot of stuff going on at the farm when you were a kid. And uh, I, it wasn't my youth group, I was just little, but it was my older sisters, and, and I remember they were playing a game, uh, kick the can, and the uh, kids are all running around or whatever, and one of the girls in the youth group lost a contact lens. And this is, this is like 1983, so this is not like everyone has disposable contact, oh, I just lost my disposable contact, or everyone has a, you know, a plan to pay for this, we were poor, and so this was a big deal. Losing a contact lens wasn't an option. And I remember they didn't even hesitate. All the kids got around in a circle. It's my first memory of seeing this. And they all kneeled down, and one by one they prayed. And when they finished praying, one girl said, I think I found it. And exactly where she had knelt to pray, she pulled up a contact lens on a farm lawn. I don't have a lot of memories from that young, but I remember that. You should have seen those kids praising God. That's the power of a living God, one who can perform miracles.
This psalmist goes on to describe the Lord of which they put their trust in. He says, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And you ask yourself, what does that mean? What's the significance of that statement? Well, I'm glad you did. Not allowing your foot to be moved is an indicator that God would establish them in a firm place. God's infinite power and goodness on which you stand will not be moved. And this is reiterated in Psalms 112.6. It says, the righteous will never be moved. He will, remember, he will be remembered forever. Psalms 55.22 says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will not permit the righteous to be moved. Over and over it's repeated to remind us that if we have God on our side, we don't have to worry about failing. He will sustain us and keep us, and we won't be shaken. As to the sleep portion, I found this in my research that many of the gods which neighboring nations believed in and worshipped, and certainly in the larger ancient Near Eastern tradition, were frequently depicted as sleeping. This activity on part of the deities was not considered exceptional, but just simply necessary to perform their duties. And so, just like the people rested, so did the deities. I remember watching this movie with the kids when, we were, when they were younger, The Road to El Dorado, and it follows the path of two intrepid explorers as they they go and try to find the lost city of gold, and it, it's, it's pretty funny. It was a pretty funny cartoon, I remember. Uh, but when they get washed up on this island and they end up finding the city, the natives there, they think that they're a couple of gods, and so because that's what their ancient writings said, and so they decide they're going to play this out. And one thing that stands out to me is as they walked out from the temple the first morning, uh, they walk out onto the patio and, and the high priest proclaims, the gods have awakened! And all the people cheer. And I, I remember thinking, I never really thought about that. that they think about gods sleeping. But it, I found that in a bunch of stories. The god Enlil is awakened from his restful slumber by humans and he demands that they be cut off from food for waking him. In another, the god Apsu complains about his lack of sleep because of the noise made by his offspring. In neither instance is there any record of shock that the deity was asleep, only that the sleeping deity had been disturbed. And I believe you Sunday school scholars will remember in 1 Kings 18, Elijah is battling it out with the prophets of Baal, and the prophets of Baal are trying to get their God to call down fire from heaven and consume the sacrifice, and they're all dancing and screaming and cutting themselves and whatever it takes. And at one point in verse 27, Elijah starts to mock them. He says, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing or relieving himself or on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and needs to be awakened. So for the nations at that time, the idea of gods being asleep wouldn't have been that far-fetched at all. So the reassurance that the guardian of Israel, Yahweh, never slumbers or sleeps would have been unique. 
He never has small naps or dozes off, nor does he sleep like the more traditional sense of a deep sleep. And as such, it would mean that he is ever watchful to protect you. And because you have a God that does not take breaks from watching you, you can have true rest when the knowledge that he has everything in control. When we travel, and it was certainly the case when the kids were younger, that as we would start down the road, one by one, they would start to nod off. And it wasn't too long, and I was the only one awake at the wheel, including my good wife, who would be resting in the passenger seat. And, uh, and you can only do this if you trust that your driver is going to stay awake. I remember uh, watching this movie in the 80s. I'm dating myself. All my references are from the 80s, but... Um, the vacation with Chevy Chase and he's driving them across the desert and, and it's a long day of driving anyways he fought the camera pans and there's both kids sleeping and then his wife sleeping and then there's he's sleeping and they're driving through all these communities and through fences and everything and, and at the last moment uh, is, you know their horns are honking and, and his wife reaches over turn off the radio or turn off the TV and come to bed and, and he wakes up and he looks and <laughs> he's like oh my gosh and the car flips around and he parks right in front of the hotel and everyone's kind of startled. He's like, okay, we're here, let's go. You know, true, true dad fashion, like I had it all under control. But uh, It's kind of funny, but there's, there's nothing funny in putting your tr trust in someone who is asleep behind the wheel. And our God never falls asleep. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep and it's a promise that you can actually rest in. As the psalmist carries on, it says, The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. And of course, most of you are familiar with the 40-year trek across the desert by the Israelites, which they met many threats. One of the greatest of these would have been the sun itself, which can be oppressively hot, and even more so when there's a shortage of water. So the promise to have the Lord keep you, the Lord is your shade, and the sun will not strike you, would have been a vivid promise in the minds of the Israelites. Isaiah 32, 1-2 says, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm. Like streams of water in a dry place, like a shade from a great rock in a weary land. Isaiah outlines again how a righteous king provides safety, shelter, and rest when you are weary. The Hebrew word here is cell, which could be shade or shadow. And while shade would have been quite welcome in the desert sun, knowing that God is shadowing you also comes with a promise. It could be a frightening concept for those who are under condemnation, but to those walking with the Lord, it comes with its own guarantee that you are literally walking in the shadow of the Lord. To me, this is the imagery of like a large bodyguard walking with you, protecting you. And so the promise is more than shade on a sunny day, which for us, eight months of the year is probably hard to visualize. But the shadow of the Lord protecting us when we're scared, tired, in danger, can be something that we can certainly identify with. It also makes a lot of sense thinking of a soldier who carries his shield on his left, leaving his right side vulnerable. Here God is literally saying, I am your protection, 
I am on your right side. Protection from the moon at night is also a promise that would have had deep meaning. For in the desert, it is common to travel in the cool of the night, navigating by the stars, with the moon giving light for your journey. But it also brought with it the superstitions of the time that still last to today. The word lunatic comes from the Latin word luna, and its link to the moon causing mental illness is widely held. Even today, I've heard it said when someone's spouse is in a particularly crazy mood, oh, it must almost be a full moon. I'm certainly, none of you have ever muttered that, but. The Babylonians also believed in the moon god Sin, which they believed to cause mental illness. So this verse gives the additional promise of protection from moonstruck lunacy. But however you read it, it definitely is a promise that day or night, God is protecting you. And this may come as a comfort when you find yourself lying awake in the middle of the night, contemplating all of the issues in the world. The passage closes with, The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep you going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And here we see the special meaning for the traveler. As Israelites would have made their voyage, often traveling dangerous roads to worship in the city of Jerusalem, God is protecting them in their going out and also when they're returning home. And our takeaway should be that God will continue to care over us from this time forth forevermore. It's a protection for life, and it never expires. He will be our guide even unto death, and then will preserve us in our heavenly kingdom. God will protect his church and his saints always, even to the end of the world. The Spirit, who is our preserver and our comforter, will abide with us forever and ever. And if you were following along in the King James Version, you would have read a trifecta of promises. The Lord shall preserve thee. He shall preserve thy soul. The Lord shall preserve thy coming and going. And when we see a phrase repeated three times, it should reinforce in our minds the importance that the writer is trying to portray. And if you leave here today and the only thing you remember from my sermon is that the Lord will preserve you, it's still a win because this comes across as a final pledge to your security. A reason, no, a hope that should erase the anxiety of your life. Why would you need to waste energy worrying? You have God keeping your life in his hands. Romans 8, 38-39 says, I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. A few years back, I was doing a sales service call at my last job, and it was uh, scheduled to be a good day, meaning that sometimes my work life and my personal life got to cross over, and I was going out to see a customer who was also a friend of mine. And I was going out to CNRL Two Creeks, and the the customer I was going to see was actually Lance Hoskin. And so, yeah, it was my work day, but I also got to go out, and I think I brought him Subway, and the two of us had lunch on the back of a tailgate, and we talked about life's troubles and trials and everything else. And I don't remember a lot of it, but I do remember that at the end, I mean, we came to a point 
where we're talking about trials and stresses, and we landed on this scripture that I should probably read every day. It's Matthew chapter 6, 25 to 30. It says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food or the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet our heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not more clothe you, O you of little, of little faith? And if I'm completely honest, sometimes my anxiety eats me up because I have a few, had a few things in my life that have really thrown my way off of course. And there was a time where I did not carry all the weight I do now, and I'm sure that most people, as they go through their life, that's how it goes. Some who knew me when I was young would be hard-pressed to recognize me from the carefree, jovial, easygoing individual I once was. And some of these things have changed who I am. They constantly re-emerge, and they keep telling me, you're going to be hurt again. You're going to be betrayed again. You're not going to persevere to the end. And if I let it, it will put my mind into a downward spiral, which not only punishes me, but it punishes those around me who I love the most. So what do I do when I'm face to face with my own worries? I have two options. One, I can sit there and stew and brew up all kinds of terrible thoughts, whether real or imagined, and downward spiral without end. Or I can focus on promises outlined in some of today's passages like Matthew 6, Romans 8, and Psalms 121, where I'm not focusing my attention on self, my value in other people's eyes, or my status here on earth. Instead, I take the promises of God that I am protected and watched over by the creator of the universe. And while I may experience loss or suffering here on earth, Christ not only identifies with me and has experienced it himself so that he can empathize with me, but he also has an eternal plan for me. And even if something happened where I was no longer valued or esteemed by my peers, my kids, my spouse, my identity is not defined by what the world thinks of me. I have an identity in Christ that cannot be taken away from me. And I have a God who never sleeps and promises to help me, watch over me, shelter me, preserve me, and keep me through this life and into eternity. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you so much that we can come before you and that we have your word and that we can learn from it. Lord, I thank you passages like today that just remind us that you are eternal and you are watching over us and you are our protector and that we can rely on you and we don't have to worry that you're asleep at the wheel. We don't have to worry that you don't have our best interests in mind 
we don't have to worry what everyone else is doing around us, that we can put our faith and our trust in you and that we can rest in that. I pray that as we go from here this Sunday that you would hammer that into our minds, that you would remind us that we can trust you through all of the worries in this world. And uh, I pray that um, that would be a blessing on everyone as we leave here today. Lord, we want to pray all this in your holy name. Amen.